It's so good to be back with you again today, and it's a pleasure always to gather with you and share in God's Word. So I would like you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to be sharing a little bit different message. We were going through the book of James in our morning worship, and uh, I diverted from our study in James to deal with the topic of how to guarantee the judgment of God. And this is Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 21. Now, this is Thanksgiving week, and I'm sure many of you will gather together with your families and friends, and you will celebrate Thanksgiving. And it's always an opportunity for us to remind ourselves of the tremendous blessings that we have that God has given to all of us. We have the freedom we have to meet together in worship. We have the abundance of the Word of God given to us in written form and audio form that we can access at any given moment. It is absolutely astounding how much is available to us now. I was thinking about it even this past week as I was just turning on a couple of YouTube channels that I listen to that have solid men of God who preach the Word of God. I was listening to the beginnings of the Puritan Conference that was just done out at the uh, Grace Community Church in California uh, with Joel Beakey there, and it was such a tremendous blessing to be able to access this without even having to be there. And uh, we are a blessed people. We have so much available to us. But every time I think about that, I also remind, remind myself of how much accountability we have because we have so much. And God does hold us accountable for the things we have access to and that we know. But along the theme of thanksgiving, I know it doesn't seem like it's going to get there, but talking about how to guarantee the judgment of God. And I'd like to talk about this this morning. Romans 1 and verse 18, I'll read down through the middle of verse 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God... They did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. This past week, I've done a good bit of research on the topic of Thanksgiving, thinking about what I was going to preach in the church services this Lord's Day. I ran across a book that was published in 2008. The title of the book was A Culture of Crybabies, the 21st Century World of Wimps, Whiners, and Victims. In that book, the author said this, America has become a culture of crybabies. The once thriving bastion of freedom and courage has evolved into a fearful, dependent culture of wimps, whiners, and victims. Character, responsibility, and achievement have morphed into political correctness, excused laziness, and a sense of entitlement. Coming forward to 2022, I would have to say probably he needs to do a second edition. Because now we're in much worse shape regarding that. And it is an understatement for sure. There was another article that I read that said America is a country of ungrateful whiners. But this author betrays a very troubling trend that I've seen in the last couple of decades that has been growing worse and worse. In this article, he was talking about the amazing benefits and blessings that we all have by living in this country. And he was talking more geographically speaking of why we are so blessed here in this 
country. He said that our country really is the dominant country of the North American continent. And in that continent, we are actually protected by the Pacific Ocean on the west side and the Atlantic Ocean on the east, and we actually have the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico in the south. And there are very few countries that have those natural boundaries that prohibit people from getting access to us so quickly as far as aggression is concerned. He said also that our countries are, our country is very blessed in the rivers that we have. Uh, like other countries, they have rivers like the Amazon or the Nile or the Rhine. But he says in our country, we have the mighty Mississippi, the Missouri, Missouri and the Ohio that are really a network of rivers that transport goods, gigatons, he says, of goods and allow our country to be a prosperous country, economically speaking. But then he said this, we also are blessed because we have a benign climate, unless you live in Buffalo right now where there's six feet of snow. He said in the most parts of America, the temperatures are relatively normal. They're not very, very hot, not very, very cold. And he says even Goldilocks would be happy to live here in America, but she also would be affected eventually by the grumbling nature of the American people because they have a love of griping about the weather, Right? He also added this, that we have in our country a blessing of a tremendous amount of fertile land. And in that fertile land comes some of the most beneficial and nutritious foods in all of the world. All of those things were good, and that didn't trouble me at all. But what troubled me was what was at the latter part of the article where he said this, the point is that each of those benefits listed above are a great gift of nature They are all accidents of geology. All accidents of geology. He went on to say, we just so happen to be the luckiest bunch of ungrateful whiners on the planet. Now, there's a couple of words in there that trigger me. One of them is luckiest. Another is accident. We're no accident. And the world is not governed by luck. Sadly, the most common, typical, and tragic worldview of Americans today is that they have a godless worldview. There is no God, so therefore, in their mind, we're just a chance collision of atoms. In everything that we experience today, all that we have, that we can even call blessings, are just a chance collision of atoms. Last time I looked, whenever atoms collide, it doesn't produce something good. But also, as one pastor said, we might be stardust. You know, just a clumping together of stardust. But let me ask you a question. If we're just accidents and we're just a chance collision of atoms or we're just a clumping together of stardust, then who in the world are we giving thanks to? Or what in the world are we giving thanks to? In other words, it's absolutely absurd to think that you could give thanks to an accident or that you could say I'm blessed because atoms have accidentally collided together and we're just a product of luck. And what that is, it's the troubling trend in America that we have divorced ourselves from the only objective truth and the only objective means by which someone can be blessed and that is the God of heaven. And what is more troubling than this 
is that it seems like more and more that people have a tendency to forget this. They don't even see the need to give thanks anymore. I mean, Thanksgiving is really just the hurdle of a holiday to get past so that you can get to the next one, which is the big one, Christmas, so you can purchase more things and buy more things that you never really needed anyway, right? So people say that they're thankful, but I ask the question, well, who are you thankful to? If they say they're being blessed, I will say, who is it that's blessing you? If you don't believe there's a God, then where does it come from? And why are you even acting as if there is a God when you don't even believe there is? So whenever I think about this, I think we can go to a passage here in Romans 1 and we can find out how it is that an unthankful people can guarantee the judgment of God. You and I might not think of it like that, but did you know that not being thankful is a sin? That most Christians today would tell me that they believe that, that they believe that not being thankful is a sin, but I don't think they really understand just how severe a sin it is. In fact, I think most of us would agree that on occasions we have said, well, I forgot to give thanks, or sure, I need to be more thankful about the things that God has given to me, but do we really understand just what kind of magnitude of an omission that really is? Being unthankful is one of the most egregious sins a human can commit. It is really the fruit of a self-centered, sinfully autonomous creature. It is the expression of atheism, a blatant denial of what is rightfully God's. It ranks up at the top of the ways in which you can express your rebellion against God. You may think that that's a little over the top. Maybe I'm pushing the limits a little bit. That thankfulness, or rather the lack thereof, would be such a severe sin. But trust me, based on the Bible, it is. Just to give you a quick illustration of that, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, Paul gives us there a list of sins that will be really reflective of the last days. And we're living in the last days. Y'all realize that, right? They started all the way back whenever the Lord ascended up into heaven, and we're living in them now. But no doubt, clearly, there are times, there are seasons in history where these things get worse and worse. And here we are living in the midst of those times whenever this has become characteristic of our culture. In fact, Paul says this, and know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, or dangerous or difficult times will come. Then he goes on in verse 2 and following and explains what that will be like or why would be a better way of saying this, why it would be a perilous or difficult time. Verse 2, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of what is good, and traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. I don't know if you caught it, but right in the middle of a list of very horrendous sins is unthankfulness. Right in the middle of being a blasphemer, an unholy, brutal person who despises what is good and is unforgiving is the word unthankful thankful. 
We don't think of it that way. We don't usually put it in the category of those kinds of sins. But the Bible does. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said this, Love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. For your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For God, that is, is kind to the unthankful and evil. I mean, God puts the two words right beside each other. The evil enemy that will do you harm and the unthankful are in the same group. The same group. The word that is translated in both of those texts comes from a Greek word that is translated in the ESV and the New American Standard as ungrateful. And that's really a good understanding because it's a little different than the word we have in Romans 1. In fact, this word, unthankful, in first, or rather, 2 Timothy 2 and also Luke 6, is a totally different word than the word Eucharist that we have over in Romans 1. This word is actually a word, it's a compound word. It has an alpha privative in front of it, the letter A, that negates the next word. And the next word is the word charistos, which we get the word grace from. So the word actually means ungraceful or no grace. Behind the word, it has the idea of someone that is unthankful, ungracious to other people. In other words, they're unwilling to express thanks to anybody else. They're not going to be graceful to anyone at all. In fact, they will be the opposite of that. You find that exemplified in Luke chapter 17. You remember the story of the ten lepers? I mean, they came and yelled out to Jesus for them to be cleansed, right? And Jesus in his mercy exactly does that. He cleanses them. He heals them. They were commanded in verse 14 to go and show themselves to the priest, which was actually a command in the Old Testament to verify the cleansing. So if they were verified, then they could go back into society. So here you have it. They go to the priest, and obviously it's very clearly verified. They are totally, completely, wholly cleansed. But then in verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. Jesus responded in verse 17, were there not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Only one comes back. And according to the text, he's a Samaritan, so he's a half-breed. He's considered, un, he's considered defiling to the Jews, and yet he's the one that returns, and he offers glory to God and thanksgiving. The others did not. And the point that I'm going to make about that text is, is that here you have a good example of what it means to be an ungrateful person. These nine never returned. They never acknowledged to Jesus that he had healed them. They never gave thanks to him, hence giving thanks to God. They were unwilling to glorify and exalt him. But also in this text, it is most amazing that you find out that Jesus here, or at least the story does, puts together the glorifying of God and the giving of thanks. In other words, if you want to truly be able to glorify God, you must be willing to give thanks to God. The word translated here to glorify and the word translated here to give thanks are what they call present participles. And it's saying that this one came back, this Samaritan came back, and he was continually 
speaking loudly with his voice and glorifying God, extolling him, praising him, and giving him thanks. And by the way, the word spoke loudly or with a loud voice is the word phonēs megales. In the Greek, it's the word we get megaphone from. In other words, he is literally not just speaking, he's yelling it. He's shouting it to make sure that everyone hears that he has been healed. He's been delivered from the leprosy that he had for all of his life, if so. And God has miraculously, powerfully, mercifully healed him. This is not the only time, by the way, that you have the word thanks and the word glory or glorify God together. You have it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul talks about participating and partaking of food and giving thanks. And then in that very same context, he says, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So you find here and also in Luke that God lumps together in one category, the giving of thanks and the glorifying of God. That's what we have in Romans 1. Look at it there in Romans 1, 21. Because although it says they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. You get the sense behind the words that Paul writes here is that being thankful is a means by which you glorify God. If you don't give thanks, you're not glorifying God. In other words, it is one of the most vital points in all of the Bible that for you and I to truly be able to glorify God, to attribute to Him what is rightly due His, the praise and the honor and the glory that is due His, then we must be willing to be a thankful people to give thanks. We see also here in the text, in the context of Romans 1, judgment comes in verse 18 upon all men. The wrath of God is constantly being poured out on those who do not know God, those that are uh, conducting unrighteous lifestyles, ungodly lifestyles. And these men, according to the text of Romans 1, refuse to give glory to God and to give Him thanks. And as a result of that, verse 21 through 28 tells us that they become empty or useless in their thinking in verse uh, 19, or think, I think it is, yeah, verse 19 and 20. 21, a darkening of their heart occurs. They become fools, deceiving themselves. They worship gods of their own imagination. They exchange the truth for the lie, verse 25 says, and they don't even desire to keep God in their mind, in verse 28. And as a result, God judges them. It says in verse 24, 26, and 28 that he gives them over to uncleanness, to their own evil passions, and he gives them over to a reprobate, useless mind. And the word give over here is the Greek word paradidomi. It's an interesting word. It's actually used in a positive way and a negative way. The word para means alongside of. We get parallel from it. The word didomi is a very common word in the Greek language to give. And the idea is to give over or to give alongside of. And it, 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 behind the word is the idea of personal involvement, that whoever's doing this is personally involved in the giving. And God is the one giving over here, but he's giving over to judgment. The word paradidomy can be used in the sense of giving over to a, an authority to be judged, to give over to imprisonment. It also can be used in positive ways, but obviously here in this context, it does not have that positive nature. 
They are being given over to their own uncleanness, their own evil, vile passions, and eventually to a reprobate mind. And the reason why ultimately is this. They refuse to glorify God and to give thanks. That's what it goes back to. This is what we find, and this is why we are given in verse 18 these words that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, what are they suppressing? They're suppressing the glory of God, the character of God, the person of God, the fact of God. They're unwilling to allow that God that is the biblical God, the God of creation, to exist in their mind. They refuse it. They reject it. They, they rightfully are willing, if you will, to deny the very God who created them. It is a blatant refusal, a blatant refusal to acknowledge the obvious, that there's a God. There's no greater sin in all of the Bible than the unwillingness of the creature to give glory to God. I mean, the one that created you, the one that made you who you are, the one that gave you breath to breathe, that keeps you alive today, as it says in Acts 17, that you move and have your being in. You literally exist because he exists. If he did not exist, you would not. And yet you as a creature are unwilling to acknowledge this God who created you, unwilling to give him praise for what he has done, unwilling to give him thanks. This theme of the glory of God is found all throughout Scripture. We could spend all day today into the next week reading verse after verse after verse. So I'll only read you a couple of hundred. No, just a few. The point I'm making here is this, and I know all of you here today know this, but you and I were not created for our own personal enjoyment. We're here for a reason, and we're here for one primary reason, to glorify God. The chief end of man, yes, is to enjoy God, but to glorify him forever, to exalt him. Everything was created, all of the planets, the stars, the creatures, all of humanity were created for him. All of the saved and all of the lost are created for God's glory. Romans eleven thirty six, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, There is only one God and Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Colossians 1, 16, For by him all things were created, that are in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. For him. You have the verses like 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you. And praise your glorious name. Proverbs 16, 4 says, The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked, for the day of doom. Other verses like Matthew 6 at the disciples' prayer, 
where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, the conclusion of that prayer is, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Romans 16, 27, to God alone who is wise, be glory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 29, 1, give unto the Lord all you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Revelation chapter 4, you have the 24 elders that are gathered there at the throne of God and they're worshiping him, the one who lives forever and ever, and they're casting their crowns before him. And they say this, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things and by your will they exist. And you have Revelation 19.1. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Then you have the things, the commandments rather, that we are most familiar with, the Ten Commandments. Did you know that the primary purpose of the first few commandments are to ensure that you and I understand the priority of giving God all the glory? In Exodus 20 and verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The word before me in the Hebrew text is the word pane. It means face. In other words, God says you will not have any other gods in my face. Don't bring any of your gods in my face. You will not take away from my glory. Verse 4 says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealous of what? There's nobody else out there. There's no other gods. Is he jealous of some false god? No. He's jealous for his glory. And he will not tolerate anyone or anything taking that glory away. In Exodus 27, 20 verse 7, it says, And you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the name of the Lord in vain. In other words, you're not allowed to do this. You cannot in any way distract, take away, diminish the very glory of God. If anything, you must extol, you must exemplify, you must even praise and give thanks to the glory of God alone. Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. Jesus is confronted there by a lawyer who comes to him and asks this question that many of, many of us have heard. He says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What does Jesus say? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then he says this, this is the first and great commandment. The great commandment. Turn with me just for a moment, just hold your place in Romans 1, and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the call on Israel by God as they are going to go into the promised land not to forget God and not to turn to the false idols of the nations around them. Notice the emphasis as I read through some of the text here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. Now this is the commandment and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you. 
that you may observe them in the land in which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Now the Shema of Israel in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Then he says in verse 6, And these words, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. You shall walk when you walk in the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. I think we get it. I mean, God is not one who's desirous of allowing any of his glory to be taken or removed or diminished, and he wants to make absolutely sure of it. Now go back to Romans 1 for a moment as we kind of look at this text in more detail. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, I want you to notice the first word. The word because, because. Now, if you have an ESV, it may translate for. Uh, actually, the better translation of that is the word because. Sorry, ESV owners, but that's the way it is. <laughs> There's actually a couple of words that are used through the text that are translated for and because. They are two conjunctions. Uh, one of them is a very common word used throughout the New Testament in the Greek language. It's the word gar, G-A-R, not the fish, but the actual conjunction. And the word actually is a word that is used to help connect a previous thought to the secondary thought. So as you're moving through a text and he says something, he will explain it, will, actually he will explain it with the very next verse. But then you have the other word that is used in this text, diati, is the Greek word, and it's like explaining the reason something happens, the reason something happens. And I'll show you what I mean as we move through this and just look at the text to explain it carefully. Beginning in verse 18, look at it with me. Verse 18. For, there you have it, there's the word gar. And so what he's about to tell us is that he's going to explain what he just said in the previous verses. The previous verses are, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as, as it is written, the, the just shall live by faith. So in verse 18, he's saying that verse 18 is going to explain why verse 16 and 17 are true. 
You say, how does that work? Well, first of all, the good news is what? The good news is, is that you and I can be saved by God giving us righteousness that we don't have. That's the point of it. He says it in verse 17, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, you don't work to get righteous. You don't do good deeds to get righteous. Righteousness comes by believing, by trusting in Jesus alone. Therefore, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And then he explains why that is the case. And the reason is, verse 18, because obviously the wrath of God is constantly being revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And the point is, there's nobody righteous. Nobody. So you're not going to get there because you're going to change your little attitude and get better each day. The only way someone becomes righteous is by faith in Christ. Otherwise, you're part of that whole group of humanity who are ungodly, unrighteous, and the Bible tells us it's exemplified and verified by the wrath of God being poured out on all of those who are ungodly. And not only that, in verse 18 he says, they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now verse 19, a translation of that would be best because, because the wrath of God is revealed on those who are suppressing the truth for this reason that what may be known of God is manifest in them. In other words, God is pouring out his wrath on all of humanity in their ungodliness because what may be known of God is already made clear to them. He says it in the text. God has shown it to them. We would ask the question how. The next connection would be verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. In other words, God's wrath is revealed because men already have the knowledge of God. They know there's a God, right? How do they know that? It says in verse 20. His invisible characteristics are clearly seen by what? By what is made. By what is made. For those of you who are parents in here, we just heard that there are two newborn babies that are in this congregation. And I can testify to you from personal experience that whenever you're there in the room where your wife is giving birth and you see that baby for the first time, that indeed is a marvelous, miraculous work of God that he gives a person and there they are, complete as a whole. It's amazing what God does. The power of God that he has in his creation. The marvelous complexity in our creation. All of this speaks to the character and the person of God and his power. And what Paul is saying is this. The wrath of God is revealed for this reason. God has made himself known through tremendous evidence that he exists and what his character is like, right? And yet, here's the point, look at verse 21, yet they knew God, the God that he, they were shown from creation, but they didn't glorify him. You see, what he's telling us is this, all of humanity is absolutely without excuse. God has perfectly, completely shown himself to exist. And not only that he exists, but also has given us a theology proper from the creation itself. You can determine from creation itself that God is a loving, merciful, gracious, benevolent God. You can determine from creation that God is a just God. 
that he's a God of wrath. You can see the power of God. All of that just by looking at creation itself. And what Paul is arguing here is that all of humanity, listen to this, is without excuse. No one will ever be able to stand before heaven and say, God, I didn't know. No one came to me and told me about Jesus. Or no one told me about God. There's not one single person who's ever lived on this planet who will have that defense. Not one. In fact, the text is in uh, verse 20 where it uses at the end of the verse that they are going to be without excuse. The word excuse here is a word that we get the word apology from or apologetics, no defense. In other words, they are without defense. They don't have a defense attorney. They have no one to say, look, I didn't have any way of understanding this or knowing this. God is holding you accountable for this. He's holding you accountable for the information that he gives you, and he's telling you this. There's enough information in the creation itself to condemn you if you reject it. Enough. If nobody shows up with a gospel track, if nobody tells you about Jesus, there's enough information in creation itself to hold you completely accountable with no excuse and to condemn you. It's inexcusable, it's indefensible, it's non-rational, and it's sinful, therefore, not to acknowledge and to glorify God. That's why I tried to share with you earlier that it is one of the most egregious sins that humanity can ever commit because it's in the face of so much evidence. So much evidence. And to the refusal to do this, the refusal to give thanks and to glorify God is the expression of self-centeredness and idolatrous worship. It replaces the true God with a God of your own sinful passions. And this ingratitude and unwillingness to give thanks and to acknowledge God in a meaningful and honoring way opens the floodgates of God's wrath. I mean, we might think, you know, well, yeah, if you have a this situation with Sodom and Gomorrah, sure, God's going to pour out his wrath or yeah people were wicked all the time according to genesis chapter 6 and god flooded the entire planet and yeah there's ananias and sapphira there in acts chapter 6 and you have a situation where they lied to the holy spirit and god struck them dead and sure there's a lot of people who shake their fist at god in the book of revelation and say crude and horrific and blasphemous words toward the name of god and god strikes them dead and slaughters them there in the book of revelation but have you ever thought that a, a people or a person could be under the judgment of God for not giving thanks? For refusing to give thanks? That's what Romans 1 is teaching. It's saying that is just as bad. An unwillingness to acknowledge the God of heaven, an unwillingness to give the glory that is rightfully his. I mean, this is the root of all the problems in all of creation. This is what gives birth to pride. This whole problem of unwillingness to glorify God and to give recognition to God and to give thanks to God. I mean, pride is simply the exaltation of self for the glory of self over God. Think of it like this. When Satan fell out of heaven, he had one primary desire, and that was what? To usurp the authority of God and to give himself what? Glory, right? That's what he was after. God said no. Kicked him out. He ends up down here on the earth. He's in the Garden of Eden. He's there with Adam and Eve. 
And they fell, and the reason why they fell is because they were more concerned about their own personal autonomous self. They wanted to get the glory and not God because Satan tempted them that way. Look, you can be like God. That's what Satan said. You can get the glory. You don't have to submit to this God. You can be your own God. So when someone is think, thankless, they are in essence saying to God that you have the power to create me. You have the power to sustain me, to provide for me, to protect me, to allow me to live, to have mercy on me. But I will not acknowledge you. I will not. And I will not rightly attribute to you what is rightly yours and give you the glory and thanks. And by the way, just for a moment, let's just talk about atheism and agnosticism. There is no such thing as an atheist. I mean, people can claim it all day long. They say, oh, I don't believe in God. Well, the Bible says, according to Romans chapter 1, that you do know there's a God. And God's put on display that he is and he does exist. And the only reason why you refuse to acknowledge him is because you want your own sin. The agnostic can say, oh, I don't know if there's a God. God says, oh, no, you do know there's a God. My creation is very, very clear. And the fact is, you have chosen to suppress the truth that is absolutely obvious in front of you so that you can have your ungodliness and your unrighteousness. And then evolution. Oh, goodness, I mean, I know we've talked about it probably enough in Christian churches, but do we realize just how much of an affront to God's glory evolution is? I mean, it is the attempt to suppress the truth of the existence and glory of God and to give glory to chance and to give glory to accidents. And the Bible's making it abundantly clear that God will not tolerate this. This is no small sin. It's deserving of the worst punishment that God can give when he gives men and women over to their own evil passions so that they will destroy themselves. It is indeed this thankless unwillingness to glorify God, the sins of sins, the father of all lies. It is the mountain upon which many will die. It is the expression of depravity at its worst, and it is the peak of the dark recesses of the fallen human heart. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse has a very potent paragraph dealing with this text in Scripture in Romans 1. He said this, Will God give man brains to see these things, and will man then fail to exercise his will toward God? The sorrowful answer to that is both of these things are true. God will give a man brains to smelt iron and make a hammerhead and nails. God will grow a tree and give man strength to cut it down and brains to fashion a hammer handle for the wooden handle. And when man has the hammer and the nails in hand, God will put out his hand and let man drive the nails through it and place him on the cross as a supreme demonstration that men are without excuse. Men are without excuse. So the next time you or I begin to minimize this sin of thanklessness, or we forget to give thanks, or we don't make it a priority to give thanks, we need to remember this text. It is a severe sin. Severe. Secondly, there's another way in which you can guarantee the judgment of God, not only a denial of God's glory in Romans 1, 
but you also can defy God's sovereignty. You can defy God's sovereignty. Well, how can you do, how can you do that? Well, let me read a couple of verses to you, and I'll show you why. You know these well. Philippians 2.14, do all things without complaining. We know that one, don't we? Probably the one we want to skip over whenever we're reading through Philippians. Do all things without complaining. Then also 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9 says, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. That's the same Greek word, gonguzmos. It's one of those onomatopoeic words. It sounds like what it means. In other words, you're grumbling undertones of gum, 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 grumbling. You're grumbling against God. One lexicon said it is a smoldering discontent. You may not necessarily say it, but you're complaining. You're whining. Complaining is a refusal. Listen to this. Complaining is a refusal to acknowledge the sovereign plan of God in your life. We acknowledge this here in this church. I know we do. That every single detail of our life has been ordained of God. Obviously, the confessions state that, but most importantly, the Bible says that. There's nothing that happens in your life that has not been planned and purposed by God. So whenever we complain, what we are complaining against is the perfect, wise plan of God. It is a usurpation of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's high treason against the authority and rule of God. It is, in essence, you telling God that you do not know what you're doing whenever you complain. It's the absolute opposite of thanksgiving, and it's the heart's way of expressing rebellion. Now, men and women have been complaining ever since the beginning. Ever since Adam and Eve were in the garden, when Adam was confronted, he complained. It's the woman that you gave me. When Eve was confronted for her sins, she complained. It's the situation you put me in. The serpent was here, right? And since then, Billions and billions of complaints have gone up into the throne room of God. And they basically have said to God, you have no clue what you are doing. And refuse then to appreciate and to thank God for the plan that God has ordained for their life. I mean, the Bible is very, very clear, very clear that God hates complaining. In fact, of all the judgments in Scripture, there probably are no more startling judgments than when God reacts to complaining. Let me just share a few with you, and I want you to turn to one and get settled there. Turn to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. While you're turning to Numbers 11, let me share with you two other incidents in the book of Numbers where God judged the people of Israel for complaining. Now, what we need to remember is this. Let's put it in context, okay? The people of Israel have been delivered from Egypt by a very Mighty, powerful hand, right? Miraculously powerful hand. He's brought them out of Egypt. He had the pillar of fire there, the cloud. He had the dividing of the Red Sea, a wall of water on both sides. He destroys army, the army of Pharaoh. God is taking care of Israel daily, providing water out of the rock, providing food through the manna coming out of the sky. Everything is being provided by God. He allows the sandals of the people to last years. And yet, they end up in this complaining, complaining attitude. Numbers 21, just keep yourself there in uh, Numbers 11. Listen to this. 
Numbers 21 is another incident of complaining. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this miserable bread. Now, that's an amazing thing to consider because the word here in the New King James is worthless bread. He's talking about the manna. The manna. So the people have been eating the manna for a while, okay? And they have actually said to Moses and said to God in their complaint that they loathe, hate, despise this miserable bread that God is literally creating and falling on the ground every morning. The Lord sent a fiery serpent among them to bite the people, and many of the people died there that day. Number 16 is another one. Number 16, verse 41. On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Now it has happened that when the congregation had gathered together against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly the cloud came over, and the glory of the Lord appeared there. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among the congregation, that I might consume them in the moment. That's another way of saying, Moses, get out of the way so I can kill them. That's what he's saying. Do you know why God wants to kill them? Because of their complaining. Because of their complaining. Paul even alludes to these stories in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he says this, and I think this is striking also. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, meaning sexual immorality. Then verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them were tempted and uh, were destroyed by the serpents. Nor complain as some of them were complaining and were destroyed by the destroyer. And that refers to the angel of the Lord that came through Egypt and also during David's time and killed 70,000 and later on under Isaiah and Hezekiah's time destroyed the entire Assyrian army. That's the angel of God doing that work. And the point is, because of complaining, God sent the destroyer to kill them. To kill them. What is also interesting about that text is that Paul says, now all these things happened to them as examples and were written for our admonitions. In other words, God says, all these people were slaughtered and killed and died for their complaining, their immorality, and their idolatry so that you and I would have examples of the way we should not live. <laughs> we should not live that way at all. But did you notice again lumped into all of that is that you have idolatry, sexual immorality, and then complaining. Right in the same group. But now look at Numbers 11. I think this is probably one of the most sobering examples of this. Numbers 11, verse 1 and following. At the very beginning, it says, now when the people complained. I think uh, one of the translations says, now when they began to complain. In other words, this is the process. They're starting to complain again. And it says, it displeased the Lord. That's the Hebrew word for ear. 
In other words, what's happening is they're complaining and it's going up, if you will, into heaven, into the ear of God. He's hearing this. And the anger of the Lord was aroused. That means set ablaze. Set on fire, if you will. God's anger was heating up because of the complaining. So then the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched, and he called the name of the place Taborah, which basically means the burning place. And the point was, right at the very beginning of chapter 11, you have the people complaining, and God judges, immediately judges, by fire, and burns up some of the perimeters of the camp. I read one commentary, and it's always interesting to see how some commentaries uh, run into these things and handle these things, and he said, well, we're not sure if that was real fire. Well, hey, it was so real to them that they called it the place of burning. People weren't just dropping dead. They were being on fire. That's the point of the text. God was making a point that it was not allowed to be like that or to complain. Verse 4 says, now the mixed multitude, it's an interesting word. Some translations use the word rabble. It's the idea of rabble rousers. These are, you know, mischievous people that came out of Egypt along with the Israelites, and they're kind of vagabonds tagging along with them. And they're there, and they're causing trouble. I mean, they're whining and complaining and carrying on because they were used to the beautiful food of, of Egypt. They weren't necessarily slaves there as the Israelites were, so they were able to enjoy those things. And they're actually causing the people of Israel to be tempted to complain and to whine as a result of that, it says, now this mixed multitude or rabbles were among them and yielded to intense craving. That's another way of saying gluttonous lust. Because that's what's going on here. You're going to see it in a few moments. And so the children of Israel wept. They were crying. They were so full of this. This complaining, whining attitude about what they had to eat. So they said this, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up and there's nothing at all except this manna. The word manna is the Hebrew word mana. It means what is it? In other words, when they came out and they looked at it for the first time, what they said is mana, mana. What is it? And that became the name of it. And I'm sure they'd probably cooked it every possible way they could. They had fried manna, boiled manna, baked manna, you know, manna with leaves on it, manna with sticks in it. I mean, manna on the rocks. I mean, who knows? I mean, they had manna every possible way they could. Like I told our church this morning, because I actually love cake, I said this is the biblical proof that God desires that we eat cake. Because he gave the bread for them to make their cakes with, and they did do that. But the point is, they were actually complaining to God for what God was providing miraculously to them. Now, the man, it says in verse 7, was like the Corandier seed, and also the color was like the color of Bedellum. But the people went about to gather it, ground it on millstones, and beat it in the mortar, and cooked it in pans, and made cakes of it, see? And it tastes like the taste of pastry prepared in oil. And when they, the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna fell on it. 
And Moses heard the people weeping. Why were they weeping? Well, verse uh, 4 and following. They were weeping because they didn't have any meat. They didn't have the foods they were used to out of Egypt. They just had this detestable, miserable manna. And they were weeping throughout their families, everyone, at the door of his tent. And then it says, the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. Verse 13, Moses says, where am I to get meat to give to all of these people? He says, for they weep all over me, saying, give us meat that we may eat. So the Lord said to Moses, say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. Now, this is not a good thing. This is not a positive thing, what God is saying here. Because what he's telling Moses to tell the people is, you need to prepare yourself. You need to get ready because I'm about to act. And when I get through with you, you're going to wish I never did. That's what's behind this. He says, you shall meet, for you have wept in my hearing, or another way of saying, you have complained in my hearing, saying, who will give us to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt, therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. In other words, you want meat? I'll give you some meat, and you're going to eat meat. He goes on and says in verse 19, you shall eat it. Oh, yes, you will. Not one day, not two days, not five days, nor 10 days or 20 days, but you'll eat it for a whole month. And you'll eat it so much it'll come out the nostrils. And it will become, as it says in this text, loathsome. That's the Hebrew word zarah. It means highly offensive or disgusting or what creates nausea. In other words, they're going to move from manna, a nice delicate light bread to eat that another portion of scripture says was like sweet like honey and now they're going to move to meat all the time and that's all they're going to have and it's going to make them sick they're going to have so much on it of it and they were given that because they have despised the lord according to the text and have wept before him saying why did we ever even come out of egypt and moses said the people whom I am among are 600,000 men. So that 600,000 men does not count the women and the children. So there was at least 2 million, many estimate. And he asked the question, how will I give them meat that they may eat a whole month? Shall the flocks and the herds be slaughtered for them and provide them enough? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide them enough to eat? When the Lord says to Moses, and it's amazing Moses would have even forgot this, that God could take care of it. He has the power to do it, right? He says, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. So what does God do? Miraculously, he brings in the quail. He brings in the quail. Now when the wind, verse 31 says, when the wind went out from the Lord, it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp. One day's journey on one side and about a day's journey on the other side. All of them around the camp, about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And they stayed there, it says, all day and all night and the next day and gathered the quail up. In other words, they were flying about three feet high, perfect height, so they could use a net or a club and get all the quail they wanted. A guy in our church told me after the morning service, he said, uh, I actually raised quail. And he says, you're not going to believe what kind of quail I raise. He says, I raise pharaoh quail. They're actually called that. 
And they're called that because they're fat birds. And they're so fat, they're the biggest of the quail, and they can only fly so high. They can't get up high enough because they're too fat. And the point is, is that he was telling me maybe these were exactly those. And it may be. But the point is, God miraculously brought in all the meat that they would ever, ever need and more. In fact, it made them sick as a result of it. And they spread them out, they said, for themselves above the camp. Verse 33, and while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people there with a very great plague. You say, what in the world is he doing? I mean, God's answering their prayer? No, actually, he's answering their whining and their complaining. And he's giving them judgment with what they're complaining about. He judges them with a very great plague. It says in verse 34, so he called the name of the place Kibaroth Hatavah. And that actually means, literally in the Hebrew text, graves of lust graves of lust and what's behind that is is that these people were so consumed with their lust for meat and another food that they were willing to complain against the purpose and the plan of a, of a sovereign god who's all wise and so they ended up being literally listen to this consumed with their lust consumed with it god judged them for complaining. God burned many of them on one occasion. He sent fiery snakes into their place to bite them and to kill them on another occasion. And here, because of their lust, God met their lust with their complaint and gave them more meat than they could possibly stand and then killed them. This is a classic example of Romans 1. A classic example. Because they refused to acknowledge God, to give thanks to God, to be content with what God gave, and glorify him. Instead, they whined against him, complained against him, and they were lustful for what God did not want for them to have. And instead, God says, okay, that's what you want. You refuse to acknowledge me. You refuse to acknowledge my plan and my wisdom for you. Therefore, I'll give you exactly what you want. And he gave them over to their own lust. And they were judged. That's exactly what happens in Romans 1. One author said this murmuring or complaining is dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will for our lives and the lives of others. It is a sin that he does not take lightly, even in view of grace. When God's people question or complain, they are challenging his wisdom, his grace, and his goodness, and his love, and his righteousness. Our need for contentment is not merely for our own well-being, which it is, but for God's honor and glory. Complaining dishonors our heavenly Father and contentment glorifies him. William Hendrickson said regarding this topic, he said, when a person prays without thanksgiving, he has clipped the wings of his prayer so that it cannot rise. When you enter into God's presence harboring ingratitude, your worship is unacceptable. Unacceptable. So there's two ways in which you can guarantee the judgment of God. First of all, deny God his rightful glory. Secondly, you can defy God's sovereign plan for your life and complain. That's how you can be sure to bring the judgment of God on your life. As we think about this time of the year, I know many of us 
Remember many, many years ago now, in the year 1620, the Mayflower set sail for Virginia with 102 Puritan Calvinist separatists on it. And they were there, and their purpose was to go to a new land to separate from the Church of England. Attempts to purify the church had failed. <clears throat> In fact, it had gotten worse. And so they set sail to come to the new land. Over the sea, of course, they traveled and traversed. They got caught up in some very, very large storms, and many of them were extraordinarily sick, nausea, dysentery. It was a horrible, horrible trip. They ended up off course, ended up further north than what they had planned. They ended up landing in Massachusetts, and there they took up in Plymouth. And you know that, of course. They landed there in the latter fall into the early winter. It was a much harsher climate than what they were used to and what they were expecting in Virginia. As a result of that, many of the early settlers, the Puritans, died, at least half of them. Of all the families, there was only three that did not have to dig graves for a family member, whether it was a husband or a wife or a child. By the spring of 1621... Half of the pilgrims had died from disease and starvation, dysentery, and other sicknesses. Not one person was untouched by such a tragedy. There was one opportunity for the ship that brought them over. They were going, he was going to go back over to England, and he offered to take them back. They refused. They believed that God had providentially and sovereignly brought them to this land and even though they had experienced such tragedy and adversity and death and sickness, they were going to stay, they were going to give God glory, and they were, they were going to give God thanks. And that's exactly what they did. God in his marvelous providence gave them protection even early on with some friendly Indians. They ended up settling together and having their first what we would call Thanksgiving meal together. But I grant you, the Puritans, whenever they came over, they came with their Geneva Bibles. Oh, yes. And they read those Bibles. And they memorized those Bibles. And they studied those Bibles. And so they would have been very familiar with verses like this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Ephesians 5, 20 says that those that are filled with the Spirit will continually give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would have been very familiar with Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, and in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. They would have known Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God. They would have also known Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him... Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, that is, the giving of thanks to his name. Another one they would have known and have personally experienced is the suffering that they learned about with Job. In Job 121, it says, naked I, came in, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord 
And off their lips would come the words, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. They chose not to focus on all the tragedy and the adversity. They chose to focus on what God had done in bringing them here providentially, powerfully, to bring them to a new place to live freely so they could worship without the restraints of a godless system of religion. Amen? Let's take a moment and pray together, and then David can lead us in our closing hymn, okay? Father, we thank you so much for this time together today. Lord, we do thank you so much for the tremendous truth that you give to us in this text. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us of the times that we complain, that we reject in attitude the very plan that you have for us. Lord, we thank you for the provisions that you give to all of us. We thank you for taking care of us, providing for our needs. But Lord, we also want to thank you for the tremendous bounty we have spiritually. We are such a blessed people. And Lord, we can go home tonight in the comfort of our own car and we can leave and go home to a home that is heated and we can enjoy a time together with our family. And Lord, we have no threat on our life today like many people in the parts of the world that are suffering just because they want to name your name. I pray, Father, that we would not take this for granted, but we would be known as people who honor you in all of our words, giving thanks always without complaining so that we can be that light on a hill and that people would see the glory of God through the testimony and the life of the believer. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a fitting hymn to sing.